Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. So, Liz. Yes. In honor of our pre-election Happy Hour podcast, we're going to start off with a few 80s flashbacks, political flashbacks. Oh, okay. I know, right? I'm excited. Let's let's go. Although, God, this makes me just feel so old. And on, on November 4th, 1980, so 42 years ago, Ronald oh. Reagan was elected the 40th president of the United States. Oh, wow. 42 years ago this week. Wow. And what's even more amazing, four years later, 1984, that was his landslide victory, November 6, 1984. Just amazing. <laughs> he won 525 elections votes to Walter Mondale's 13. Of course, Mondale carried his home state of Minnesota and Washington, D.C. I mean, Washington, D.C. 59% to 40 point whatever. That's a whooping. That would never happen. I don't care if Jesus Christ came and ran for president against the devil. Like, that, that would not be the outcome, right? It'd be close. No, I agree. I agree. Wow. <laughs> Um, that's a good memory. I mean, we love all things eighties here. So, um, I do remember that when I, I barely remember Like I have an actual memory of that. I was 10, um, of that happening and we've just been more and more divided ever since. So I don't think we'll, like you said, we're never going to have that kind of a, well, first of all, I just think there's so much voting fraud now, much more than there was back then. Um, with all the digital, the computer, now we have basically like a month to vote. Um, ma- a lot of places. And then a month ballot. to count the vote. Oh, right. <laughs> a, mo- a month to count. And then mail in mailing ballots to like everyone that has an address that also um, adds to the vote fraud. So um, those, t- those days are gone. But even so, it looks like it's going to be a bloody Tuesday next week what do you right well, what are 40 you years 40 years ago this week um were, were the 1982 midterms in between of course reagan's uh first win and then his re-election where democrats picked up 26 house seats that is not going to be the case next tuesday and we have a guest on who will explain how this could be a historic win for Republicans in a midterm election. Yeah. Well, I, I'm hoping that we do it did we do set a record, if only to like teach the uh pundit class and our media friends with blue check marks and Pulitzers just how out of touch they are with the voters and what matters to more importantly, really what matters to voters, you know, and to the idea that y- we would have a campaign a midterm campaign where none of the Democrats are talking about how to fix the economy, fix inflation, um, which is really the top of mind of voters right now, and just think that they can talk about abortion and maybe that's important to their circles, their social circles, but to the average American, gas prices, food prices, um, you know, all of that is much, much more important. And yet the Democrats are really not 
campaigning on fiscal, any fiscal f- issues or how to fix the problems. So, no, so you have their closing argument and Joe Biden gave his closing argument at Union Station, Washington, D.C., where apparently no one wants to go anymore. Liz, you're outside of D.C. Oh, but my I- God. You know, Union Station is such a beautiful architect building. It is absolutely magnificent it, outside and inside. It's spectacular. I haven't been there since before the pandemic, just because I haven't been to D.C. just a couple times, but not to Union Station. But apparently the outside is like one big shanty town, and the inside is like all the shops are gone because inside Union Station, aside from being just this architectural marvel, it's um, they have all kinds of shops in there where you can get all kinds of there's like obviously food food court type things but there's some nice shops in there too where people could buy you know luggage or purses or um some i think there were some clothing stores there may have been an h&m in there i mean it was you know decent but it was very nice and i think it's all gone now and so for some weird reason biden thought it would be good to go there and give this speech just makes no sense well, it's appropriate, right? He just probably didn't realize it. He probably didn't really know where he was. So we could start <laughs> there. <true> too. <laughs> <laughs> I told him he's at Disneyland. He's like, okay. <laughs> Where's the ice cream? Um, yeah. But, of course, the speech was predictably uh, dark and, you know, just angry. He slurred through it again. But their closing argument really are are two issues, abortion in January 6th. So you've got abortion and you've got the insurrection. And of course, no one cares about January 6th. In some ways, it's actually backfired on them because now Americans have, I think, more questions about what happened that day or before that day than they did, um, you know, as it was unfolding and then certainly the months afterwards. But um, they've really overplayed their hand. Uh, And in fact, Elaine Luria, who is in Virginia District 4, um, a district that she that Joe Biden won by five percentage points, Hillary Clinton won by six. Now, it was redistricted. It's still like a plus three dumb district. But Elaine Luria, a Democrat, her two term Democrat congresswoman who was on the January 6th committee, hoping that that would help clinch a solid victory in her district. Uh, she's in a tied race and she has outspent her Republican opponent two to one and is desperately clinging to political life. And I think that it's pretty symbolic of how much this January 6th obsession, fixation, a demonization of half the country uh, has not worked out as Democrats planned. Well, just imagine that you're, um, you know, a hardworking American with a family and you're really hurting because the price of gas is so high and the food prices have gone up and other, you know, costs have been added to you, to, to your, you know, your budget. And you see the, your elected official is using the government's resources to go on a witch hunt and think of why aren't people are probably wondering why aren't my representatives doing things to help me you know, as a voter and our economic, you know, in the economic condition that we're in. And instead, they're using resources for this witch hunt. They're showing it on television. I mean, it's not even that they're doing it. And nobody sees it. It's like it's on television. It's smearing people's 
face in a pile of shit. It's like, look what we're not doing to help the shitty condition of our country right now. Um, I think that that that's a, also a big part of it that, you know, we elect these people to represent us and to represent our um, po- policy preferences. And instead, they're on some like joyride on their dy- dystopian, you know, insurrection fantasies. You know, I, I think I think you're right, Julie. I think people thought that this and and honestly, I know you probably agree with me right out of the gate. I saw what they were doing, but I also knew it wasn't going to work because I I never thought that they would be able to gin this up so much that they would be able to, like, retain control during a midterm. And this was even before the economy. You know, we still kind of have the Trump economy a little bit. Um, right. At the beginning of Biden, um, gas wasn't as high. Uh, we hadn't botched an Afghanistan withdrawal or gotten into a war with, you, you know, with Russia. Um but even before then, I didn't think that this was something that was going to really resonate with the average voter, that it's something that resonated, again, among their social circle, but not the average person. So um, they really uh, they chose wise. They chose poorly, as the saying goes uh, on on that. And well, they now, did. And I think, too, Liz, a big backdrop is crime. I mean, and I think that that is part of driving white suburban women. I mean, when you are, when you see the crime in major cities spilling out into suburbs, into nice suburbs that have never dealt with issues like shootings and robberies and carjackings. um, And, but yet you see the democratic leadership, you know, using the FBI and DOJ to track down trespassers or people who didn't even know they were committing a crime on January 6th. Like that is a huge, I think, um, I think a big undercurrent, especially for white suburban women, aside from high prices is, you know, security in their own neighborhoods is, is huge. And, and watching this, you know, shit show and, you know, the QAnon shaman and the Indiana Meemaw are the real threats to, the security of the country. I mean, people just are not buying that. Yeah, I I agree. Um, that's a good point is I, I should have mentioned crime, which I think is just as important as inflation, because especially for suburban moms, um, public safety is always at, at the, you know, a top concern of theirs, even not even, you know, eternally. Right. It's always people care a lot about public safety because people care about issues that are closest to them. You know, we have um, the political classics sort of talking about these obscure policy things that, you know, it doesn't really translate into anything meaningful for the, the average, the average hardworking American. But when you can't go to the mall anymore, or there's shootings in front of your, in your neighborhood in like a formerly peaceful, nice, safe neighborhood that you raise your family in, that is a huge issue. And I do think the rise of social media has has um, kind of amplified that where we keep seeing videos every day, right? I mean, every day there are videos from somewhere with something horrific happening in front of them. I mean, look at look look at New York. I mean, Lee Zeldin is very yeah. competitive against Kathy Hochul or Hochul or however you say her name. And that is because 
there are people being pushed into the subways on a regular basis by like repeat felons who are not hold with held with any bails. They just get out and do it again. Not to mention stabbings. I think there was someone raped in Central Park uh, a couple days yesterday, maybe. Um, there's just so many stories about this, and it's a huge issue. And the Democrats, I think, have made a, a poor, another poor uh, bet by thinking that they could align themselves with these radical anti-police uh, groups and progressives who want to, you know, look, I mean, they can pretend it didn't happen, but we all saw the Democrats talk about defunding the police. You know, I mean, no, people remember that we know who's responsible for defunding, you know, trying to get the def- police defunded or demanding that police forces get cut back. Didn't New York reallocate like a million of their do- of their police budget to social workers or some garbage like that? People are no who's making these decisions. And it's 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 a bad bet, just like the um, pushing of all these the social agendas, this SJW agenda with the. you know, sexually grooming little children with like explicit sex lessons, you know, in in elementary school, you know, parents aren't going to put up with that shit. And but the Democrats have chosen that side. So I think that's another big issue, especially for suburban moms, is watching what has happened to our children over the past two and a half years And now even the moms, the crazy Karens, you know, who put her family in matching vineyard vine masks, doubled them up and tried to, I think now realize that they were duped. You know, the hive mind of the white suburban cul-de-sac wine mom is very strong. I know firsthand (laughs) it's very strong. So those moms who kind of went along with this and thought, okay, our, you know, my kids will be fine on remote school. Well, this is great. You know, they'll be away from their friends and activities for 6, 12, 18 months. Um, now realizing how not just detrimental it's been to our own children, even in privileged circumstances, but how just life long destruction this means for children with special needs uh minority children low-income children i mean these kids were hanging barely hanging on to begin with but especially and then just seeing the insanity the ghouls who run our public school system look at randy weingarten she is a certified lunatic she needs to be in a rubber room she was though working behind the scenes to shut down our schools shut down activities, rob our kids of rites of passage, memories that we all have forever that our our kids are not going to have because of lunatics like her. So um, I think you're right. I'm glad that you brought that up because I think the school issue and then just seeing what they want to teach our kids in schools. I mean, look, both of my daughters went to public schools. I was very happy with the services they got from both ends. Um, You know, one needed a lot more help. One was on the other scale where, you know, she was, you know, did very well. And they were great to both of my girls. But I'm telling you, I don't think I would, if my kids were little, I don't think I would put them in public schools now. And I think that's what a lot of women, a lot of, and dads too are thinking. Like, this is not how I want my children educated. Oh, for sure. Um, I think that that's another good point. One of the things I I remember thinking when they did the Zoom schools at the beginning of the shutdown and we were going to shut the schools down, I thought now parents are going to see 
what their kids are learning in school and they're going to see their teachers. And even though I think it was a tragedy and they shouldn't have locked the schools down at all, um, it's good to know. I mean, parents are busy. They're working. They don't have time to constantly micromanage everything their kids do. And also, I think the teachers hide a lot of the stuff. They kind of know that stuff that they're doing isn't the kind of thing you'd want parents to know because it's disgusting. Um, but once the parents got to see what was their kids were learning, the ones who did go to Zoom, because I think something like a million school children disappeared out of the system over yeah. COVID. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, that um, really, really had a, a tremendous effect. And people, again, the, the, the Democrats have backed themselves into a corner by repeatedly, like, choosing the, the progress, the radicals and publicly supporting the radical positions that are just completely out of touch with regular Americans. So I, I'm, I look forward to Tuesday. Um, I, I hope it's just brutal. I do. Um, and the, the question to be, and we can talk about this next, next week, next show is what comes next? Right. Um, not, not only what were the Demo Republicans do with power? Um, because I think anyone who listened to the show knows our attitude on that, but will the Democrats reorient themselves or are they just going to keep going? You know what I mean? Like they've got Randy Weingarten on the campaign trail. Right. So yeah. Who thought that was a good idea? I mean, that they've got Biden in these weird places, right? He's going to places that aren't supposed to be competitive. They they're not sending him anywhere that is competitive. They sent him to Florida, which is going to be bloody red. Right. There's no chance. You know, DeSantis is like sailing in. He's got a double digit lead. Rubio's up, I think, like six or seven at least, maybe more. Um, They sent Biden to safe places. They they sent like Obama to places that they shouldn't have to send people <laughs> because like, you know, Obama's more popular than Biden. Um, like, you, you know, like in your, in, in Illinois where he's going to be, I think today or tomorrow. Um, you know, I just, I just pray for that. They are forced to confront how out of touch they are with the American public. Well, Liz, what, what we just talked about, the litany of crises of scandals of cultural concerns, what's shocking is the Democrats are basically telling people your your eyes are lying to you. None of this is true, right? Gas prices are not that bad. Um, no, our teachers are not indoctrinating your kids with right. race and, and gender politics. And um, no, crime isn't bad. Crime... That was what they rolled out this past week or so. No, crime is not bad. No, what are you talking about? Crime is our crime statistics are down than they were. Like they they are trying to deceive. Oh, there's people. no inflation, right? That when they tried to say, oh look, yeah. inflation's not. It's transitory. It's not that bad. Or it's Russia's fault, you know. Or yeah. it's. I mean. They really think the electorate is stupid because, look, their base of voters are stupid. They're gullible. They're sheep. They will go along with whatever, you know, they are told by the Biden regime or on MSNBC. But most Americans still have some critical thinking skills and they can't believe that all that they see imploding around them is just a coincidence or has nothing to do with these policies, whether it's the regime policies, whether it's school board policies um, you know, what's happening at the local level, what's happening in cities. They they recognize the party who's responsible for 
seeing this country disintegrate. And this is not what people want, even, you know, white privileged cul-de-sac suburban white moms. Well, we will see uh, what happens next Tuesday. But now we have a special guest who is going to be joining us. So stay tuned. So as promised, we have a very special guest for the show before the the last show before the midterms next week. We have Rich Barris, who is the People's Pundit. He is a data journalist and host of the Numbers Director. Uh, oh, sorry. And he in the host of Inside the Numbers. And he's the director of the Big Data Poll. So we have an expert who I trust and I have a polling background and I trust almost no pollsters. So for me to say that I trust Rich is a big compliment. And he's joined Julie and I to talk about what is going to happen next Tuesday. So Rich, red wave, red tidal wave, red trickle, what's going to happen? So first, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I really am. Uh, this is this is uh, going to be interesting. I'm looking forward to it. You know, historically, uh, first, there are a few things that – you know, we should pretty much lay the groundwork for. So polls have not done a good job, right? So what is telling us it's not going to be a red wave? Certain individual polls, mostly from big media and university. Uh, history tells us um, that Republicans are obviously poised to have a very good night. Historically, right track, wrong track, things that are actually predictive, more predictive than polls. That's uh, historically negative. The spread is historically huge, right? Meaning there's just so, so many people who think the country's headed on the wrong track and so few who think that it's headed in the right direction. It is historic, especially in the modern era, to see that large of a spread. Um, it is a first-term incumbent midterm, which is basically the curse of the incumbent midterm. The president's party, the empower party, especially if they happen to take control of different chambers uh, when the president is elected and the Democrats did in 18, but uh, they still held control uh, in 2020. It's it just people want to blame the empower party for everything that's going on that's wrong. And then uh, there's still even in some of these uh, polls that show Democrats kind of holding on in some of these close races, they are even still beneath the surface showing that there are swings among certain groups in the electorate that really do decide whether elections are waves or trickles, and they're not small swings. So even more modest uh, leads for Republicans on the generic ballot are still showing massive swings among white suburban women. I've been calling it basically a one-two punch. And, you know, this this shift we've been seeing for the greater part, maybe over even now, of a year, and certainly started under President Trump, former President Trump, this shift among certain Hispanic groups, working class uh, Hispanics between the ages of 30 and 64, 54, 55 is even stronger. That's kind of like the straight left. And then the overhand right that could really put Democrats down on Tuesday or in the days following as we count early vote is that swing among suburban white women. These are two groups that make up significant chunks in the electorate, and both Democrats counted as voting blocks that they had on lock. And it appears they do not. And that uh, that that could, you know, forget about a ripple that could cause electoral devastation for Democrats. And I think, again, just to answer your question more straight up. I think that's history tells us it is much more likely that that's where we're headed. So, Rich, what do you think? um, Let's start off with the Senate. Um, So Republicans have to pick up one seat basically 
too, I guess, to counteract Kamala Harris. But where, what's your prediction for the Senate? What are some of your surprise races uh, in terms of these really close Senate races? So in addition to polling, we also do modeling. And be honest, I'll tell everybody outwardly that uh, modeling is so much more enjoyable personally to me. I mean, you release a poll these days and you get eviscerated by half the country. The other half is happy. Maybe not. Maybe maybe you wind <laughs> up ticking off both sides. Right. But uh, forecasting for me is uh, is more than, uh, you know, I'm a data nerd. I mean, that I have fun with this. Um, you know, and that's my my little pleasure. Polling is something I do because uh, I've I, in 2014 when we released the model, uh, public polling was had a negative impact on the predictive value of the model itself. So we uh, began releasing more public polling to show, look, there's another take on this and has been more accurate. Right now, our model, the most likely outcome, and of course there are ranges of outcomes, but the most likely is that Republicans take control of the U.S. Senate with at least at this point, at least 52 seats. And it is a high end of, uh, you know, 54 is actually rather likely. And to go higher, it is possible. It's just, it's on the uh, high end of the forecast range for us. Gets a lot less so, likely, but reasonably 52 to 54. Well, that's, encur- that's encouraging. Um, do you think that the Democrats have done a good job of countering like, well, I guess not because they're doing very poorly, but it seems like the Democrats put a lot of faith in their tactic of talking about abortion, that this abortion issue, the yeah. Supreme Court decision was going to like negate, you know, our terrible economy, gas prices, terrible foreign policy. Um, now we're getting layoffs. Um, the housing market is disastrous. Um, wh- do you think that they thought that was going to like overcome it or is it just a uh, a case of they're surrounded by their their people just like them so they're out of touch i mean what do you what do you think about that what do you think the democrats could have campaigned on that they didn't you know that that's a great question i think the answer of to the first part of that, well, one part of that question is that it's a little bit of both. You have some of these people, I don't know if you saw it, but earlier this week, you know, Joe Scarborough had a meltdown on uh, on, on national television in front of his, you know, it, it, to his wife. I mean, basically, it was like mansplaining, borderline abusing his wife over the fact, you know, they were coming to grips with the reality that voters are going to care more about uh, economic issues, their everyday lives, rather than the issues that they have themselves, the privilege, you know, the comfort levels in their lifestyle to focus on in their bubble, right? So abortion in January 6th and all oh, these democracy is at stake. And, you know, the average suburban mom and, you know, outside of uh, Pittsburgh is, you know, you, yeah, democracy it's, is at stake. My my refrigerator is at stake. You know, I mean, what are you kidding me? Uh, so uh, and it was a great, by the way, great interview from the uh, Wall Street Journal poll where uh, one of them said, look, and I, I I went back to school shopping for clothes for my kids. I don't of course I care about rights, but, you know, I have to care about my pocketbook first. And the truth is, this is a they they overextended with abortion. They believed that everybody uh, supported their position on abortion when Americans are just more inclined to be on the side of rights in general. But that that, that never meant that Americans were 
okay with unfettered abortion or what is now the mainstream position with abortion, which is no restrictions, period, at any time. Uh, We're not even having this discussion. There is a very strong consensus for a 15-week ban. It gets even stronger at 20 weeks. They lose a third of uh, pro-choice. When we, We've released a lot of polling on this, in-depth polling. If you call yourself pro-life, you call yourself pro-choice, there's the difference. If you call yourself pro-life, you're, you're pro-life. I mean, and it, it is a solid, more universal position. You can call yourself pro-choice, yet still absolutely oppose late-term abortion, absolutely oppose abortion in the second trimester. They even lose a significant number at the, at the point of a fetal heartbeat, right? So it, they overplayed their hand because they misunderstood Americans' views on abortion in general. And then, so I think they they allowed some of them allowed themselves to continue uh, to to believe the narrative themselves, even though you know they some of them are smart enough not to have been fooled by that. They they wanted to be fooled by it, but also there are smarter ones out there who know there's only really one modern midterm where we can look back and see the incumbent party, especially in a first term incumbent midterm where the incumbent party uh, broke the curse, and that was O2 with Republicans. And there's that's an, an ahistorical event season, right? We had 9-11. People were very scared. They they felt uneasy about their safety. And the number one issue, the issue set, was national security, terrorism, dealing with terrorism. They trusted Republicans, they meaning the voters, they trusted Republicans just to simply be more vigilant, to keep them safe, to keep them their family safe. For people who didn't live back then, and I was probably a lot of younger people listening. We were worried there was going to be a dirty nuke set off in a metropolitan area at any point, any day. There were there could be another anthrax attack. There could be something worse. Uh, you know, yet we had stories of yellow cake. Uh, you know, uh, basically terrorists in Africa trying to sell more terrorists from the Middle East. Uh, yellow cake to set off nuclear bombs and maybe who knows a subway in in D.C. It was a very turbulent time and one of heightened fear. Democrats, I I believe this wholeheartedly. They used January 6th, and if you really listen to their rhetoric and, and listen to the president's speech on Wednesday, they were trying to recreate this fear, and they were trying to use it as a way to distract voters from the economic failures and, and by the way, the foreign policy failures. I mean, voters at this point are just telling us they feel like things are generally tumbling out of control. The economy, inflation, uh, issues over abroad, the North Korea's flying ICBMs over over Seoul. They just feel like things are tumbling out of control. And now Democrats are struggling to distract them further. I think it worked temporarily, but that was overstated. The impact was overstated. Uh, but I think we're going to have to have this conversation after this midterm because what they did and are still doing is extremely extremely dangerous. I lived through the period post 9-11. I was from the tri-state area. Uh, that was It impacted my neighborhood. My wife's cousin died in Tower 2. How somebody would want to artificially recreate that moment that we all lived through is borderline evil. <laughs> you know, I mean, it really is. Uh, it's reckless at best and borderline sadistic and evil. And somebody's going to have to raise this conversation because it clearly was a political strategy. Very clearly. Um, Rich, the words that you just used, I know Liz knows, those are words that we have used repeatedly. I have used repeatedly related to January 6th. Evil, sadistic, prosecutor, sadistic judges. 
I mean, this is a war on terror against half of the country, and they're not joking around. And so when you have Joe Biden give this speech, again, with the imagery of January 6th, comparing the alleged attack on Paul Pelosi to, you know, what happened on January 6th, and then just watching this DOJ, this FBI, DHS, you know, what they're doing to target Americans, imprison them, prosecute them, destroy their lives. The adjectives you just use, I people who listen to this podcast know, that's not, you know, over the top. It's not, it's not hyperbole. It's, it's truth. And I think that that is going to be part of the backlash. Americans don't want this for our country. They don't want these powers used against their neighbors, right? They don't, even if they disagree right. politically. that's exactly right. So I think that's part of the backlash. I do want to ask you, since we were talking, talking about white suburban moms, which I am one, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are coming to suburban Chicago this weekend. In fact, I think Joe Biden is coming today, Friday. I live in Illinois 6, so that's Sean Caston, the Democrat. Uh, My mayor, Keith Peacow, mayor of Orland Park, is challenging him. Kevin McCarthy is going to be here today as well supporting Keith Peacock. Um, But I think it's interesting that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are coming to Chicago, Illinois, <laughs> uh, the weekend before the election. Very can you just telling. Talk? Yeah. Can, what does that say? And of course, obviously, this would apply to other suburban districts, too. But what, what do you think about that? Yeah, what you just said at the end there is exactly right. So there are this swing that they're seeing. They're, they're pollsters see it. Um, the, and by the way, a lot of you know Democratic internal polls uh, are garbage that you see public, but a lot of the private ones that I see all the time have always showed uh, what much closer uh, to the results that we have found. And you know the, the media and university polling's on you know their own planet. And now they they had this like late break toward Republicans when in truth, ladies, the entire year before the summer we saw this. The entire year, Republican leads on the generic ballot in our polling have never really been above five points. Yet, you know, if you go back to March and April, they were routinely leading between seven and 11 points. We just have never seen that before. And, you know, I'm not um, old enough to be, a, you know, polling in the 90s, but I'm not even sure it's, it was equatable to 1994. And, and they know what it means. They know what this means. This means that districts in Illinois, uh, and by the way, uh, Pritzker, who largely is thought by my industry to be okay, I I don't think he's okay. I think if it ends up being uh, a you know that that very top line of the forecast, somebody like Pritzker could fall. Bailey could win because Republicans are are going to see these gains in the districts like yours. And there's there shouldn't be four Illinois districts in the toss up category that's on the verge of leaning Republican. Uh, actually, two of them, if you look on Real Clear Politics, are already leaning Republicans. So th- they redrew Illinois in the hope they could really buffer, you know, or, or boost up these Democratic seats, and they're not. It's not happening. And Joe Biden was in New Mexico. I mean, if you're getting sent to New Mexico, um, if you're going, uh, if if you're the the D triple C, and you have to send another million and a half outside of the five boroughs and in some areas of New York City because that that media market is overlapping with suburban districts that are moving away from you, then you're on. We it's sad because we. We try to do this. Alternative voices try to do it. But for the most part, the mainstream media did not thoroughly explain in coverage over the last three weeks what this shift among these voters means. It means 
we're still going to see this uh, working class rural uh, margin that we've been seeing under the era of Trump. It, the polling suggests that's still going to be there. Imagine 2020 without the without the suburb problem. Imagine that for a second. We went into 2020 with all of the forecasts in the House saying that Democrats were poised to pick up 15 seats. The public polling suggested that they would win the generic ballot of the House vote by about eight points. They they won it by a little bit less than half of that, a little bit over three, and Republicans gained, gained 15 seats. So now, folks, imagine if that environment was replicated, shift it for five points, uh, or actually, you'd have to shift it about seven, eight, nine, ten points nationally more Republican, and the suburban uh, you know, woes that Republicans have are, disappear. They vanish. How many seats is that? <laughs> That's Republicans have this historic ceiling of 247, even in good years. Well, you know, this is the year that I think we're going to see the, them crack that ceiling, or at least I would say this. It's the wow. it, it is the year where it's more the most likely to happen ever, ever. Wow. So yeah, that's the environment we're in. That's the truth. So let's let's just turn to polls in general. So polling, the reputation of pollsters have taken a, a hit, I would say, over the last like maybe Rightfully 10 so. years. Um, yep. And I think it's deserve deserve, you know, it's a deserved hit. Um, but I'm curious if you think as someone as a professional and you work in this and you and I just want our audience to know there's a difference between the kind of pollsters that sell their polls to the media and that do them for the media and the people that work on campaigns and public affairs survey research that that they're different. Um, I don't. Well, not all campaigns, but some campaigns in public affairs get very different kinds of research and probably more accurate than the stuff that you see advertised on ABC News or the Washington Post or uh, Wall Street Journal poll. So my question to you, Rich, is do you think that these media pollsters are really just operating strictly on a political like for political propaganda, like knowingly? Or do you yeah. think they're just really bad at their job and they don't know how to sample? I mean, <laughs> which which one do you yeah. think it is? The media and university universe of polling uh, has two major challenges. One is methodological. They're, you know, refusing to budge from the old boys club, live caller, uh, you know, uh, gold standard live caller. It's not the gold standard anymore. In fact, in 2020, uh, we overestimated Biden's margin in Minnesota by three points. That was all due to live caller interviews. All of the other modes, whether it was SMS or online, would have gotten a much closer result. So, and by the way, it happens to me, it happens to be a lot more expensive. This is really exemplified last week by Nate Cohen at the New York Times releasing polls that are way outside of what everybody else sees. It's not just me. Um, and, and in response to it, uh, he basically calls the rest of us cheap. Those are the cheap polls. Uh, they're not cheap. That's number one. But it shows you he cares more about the prestige of, you know, that mode. And it's just part of this uh, minutia of this industry. He cares more about that than the fact that his average error in Pennsylvania is Dem 7. So he, you know, if he comes out with a Fetterman plus six, he he, he's, he doesn't seem to care at all that, that, that this is what he did in 2020. And I've actually tried to approach him and explain to him why he was wrong in Florida in 18 with Andrew Gilliman 
Ron DeSantis and going into 2020 and why he would be wrong again with his poll showing Biden winning Florida. He was arrogant, obnoxious, pretentious and dismissive. So part of it's methodological and part of it's ethical. At this point, I'm be- this is why I'm much more cynical this year and I'm much more critical this year because there is ample evidence at this point for them – any modestly intelligent person would be able to look and see and say, this is what I'm doing wrong. Any honest pollster after missing as many times as these polls have missed uh, would be able to say, you know, would want to retool, take a step back, you know, figure things out, maybe not pull publicly on a couple of races, try to test some new things, you know, new methodologies, new tactics, and see if it helped them in any way, readjust and get rid of their bias. And they're not doing that. So there's no really intellectually honest reason for them to continue to persist and do what they're doing. You know, Marist is another one. Look at their polling today. Does anyone seriously believe that their final poll has Fetterman up by six in Pennsylvania? The race is clearly moving in Dr. Oz's direction. They don't care. They simply don't care. They're they're serving a function and that's it. And they're happy to serve in that function. I mean, at one point we could have talked about the bubble. We're way beyond that now. And uh, you know, from a statistician point of view, if if it was a legitimate mistake, we would see mistakes in both directions. For instance, right. in that's right. in uh, in Arizona, we overestimated Donald Trump a little bit, but in Minnesota, we overestimated Joe Biden a little bit. In Pennsylvania, we overestimated Trump a, a tad, uh, but in Wisconsin, we overestimated Biden a tad. You would see errors in both direction, hopefully within the sampling error, right? Which we did, thank the Lord. Uh, but they're not doing that. They're all in one direction. All of these mistakes are to the benefit of Democrats and their narrative. That's not real statistics something else is going on there and i think we all know what it is these i think these these outfits should be sanctioned by apor or kicked out or something because it's completely unethical to the actual science statistical science and the science of posting and probability it it really is it's it's terribly misleading so julie do you have a, a question um well i know rich has to go but i wanted to ask him what his surprise races would be on either side, either Senate, House, gubernatorial races. Um, you know, what will be surprising on the Republican side? What will be surprising on the Democrat side? And that's a, a great, great question. And just to piggyback off, I'll, before I get right to that, I just want to say that APOR uh, is supposed to be that organization, unfortunately, like the industry itself. They are dominated by leftists. They are extremely ideological. My interactions with them have not been favorable, and neither have other outlets like Rasmussen Reports. Um, They're they're adversarial to us. That's the truth. So they are completely ideologically corrupted. So I am so happy to have heard that Real Clear Politics announced the uh, Polling Accountability Initiative. And after this election, there is going to be a bit of a reckoning because you'll have a stamp next to your name that says I suck. I mean, that's basically what's going to (laughs) happen on real clear politics to you. So, uh, Nate Cohen, get ready uh, because that's going to happen to you. Your polls are uh, egregious this year, as they have been for the last three cycles. Marist, you know, the rest of you uh, get ready for it. And it had to be real clear politics because they're the only ones with the credibility to do this. Nate Silver is a fraud. I can't say this enough. 
He is pseudo statistics. He is not real. He was raised up by David Plouffe, who leaked him internal campaign uh, strategy, internal campaign polling data in 08, which that was very good at that time, actually. And that's it. He's he's. He's a fake. He's a mirage. They created him. Uh, the sports gambling world didn't want him, and that's where he ended up. So, uh, you know, pivoting over to the surprises, even those who are trying to be honest, we do the best we can. But there are always surprises, and there definitely are in wave elections, if that's what this likely turns out to be. Um, there will be incumbents we think are going to hold on, but don't. On the on the Democratic side. Patty Murray is an obvious one to me in Washington state. Uh, Bennett could go in Colorado if the Hispanic shift coupled with the suburban shift is big enough. Uh, unfortunately, he should never have opened his mouth about Donald Trump because you cannot win without the MAGA base if you're a Republican, even in a state like Colorado. He should have pulled the Yunkin strategy, embrace them with open arms, but go after the suburban white woman as well. You can do both. It doesn't have to be one over the other. So instead of playing, I want to be the cool kid at CNN, like that's what O'Day did, um, you, you shouldn't go in that direction. So I actually think that Smiley probably has a better shot to beat Patty Murray than O'Day has to beat Bennett because O'Day opened his mouth. Uh, but Patty Murray, we won't know for days uh, because of the way they count votes in Washington. It will be heavily Democratic when we count the mail-in vote. It's almost all mail-in vote. But there is this Republican constituency and Republican-leaning constituency. In Crete, we saw it in the primary. That's how uh, Joe Kent was able to uh, defeat uh, well, become the nominee, defeated several people. But uh, this day, they'll walk in their ballot on election day, and it will take these counties in Washington state, you know, a week to count these ballots. I watched one during the primary process 34 ballots and call it a day. I mean, it's it was unreason unreasonable, but that's what we're in for, folks. So get ready. At this point, if we were talking two weeks ago, I would have told you that all of the, the fundamentals on the ground, the internals of the polling, suggest that General Baldak has a very good chance to beat Maggie Hassan. I think at this point now, if you don't realize that General Baldak is a slight favorite in New Hampshire, you're way behind the curve. New Hampshire has a, a dem lean because of the independence, but that's what happens when suburban white women swing against you. I mean, Merrimack, uh, Nashua, uh, Manchester, they need those margins there. And if they don't get them from uh, white suburban women, they're not going to get them at all. There's no one else to get them from. The working class in Manchester is going to vote heavily Republican by 30 points. And uh, Maggie Hassan's going to go down. She's always been viewed unfavorably. And on the question of whether or not she deserved re-election, she was always viewed unfavorably. Uh, some, some of these races on the House level, if you look at, for instance, something like Virginia 10, where you have Lau uh, doing really well in a district that Biden won in by double digits – I mean, if we see something like Virginia 10 going after they redistrict that, to, you know, to be much more Democratic, it was only about uh, 10 points Democratic. It's now far more than that. And yet it's basically a dead heat. So if, if you see Lau win that uh, that district in Virginia 10, oh, boy, it's going to be a bad, bad night. And but there, on the flip side. There will be uh, what people thought to be vulnerable incumbents who actually do hold on. All right. So, you know, there will be uh, I, I don't want to I'm not saying she will win, but take Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan. Eight, given the new district, it's a lot more Democratic than it used to be. They jerried it to try to get her safe. 
she did a, a, a scope on it, which was pretty hilarious. She said we had to get really creative so we didn't get routed. Um, and yet uh, both campaign polls show that uh, it's it's basically even. And there was a public poll out the other day that showed actually a Republican challenger was up by about a point. District polling is all over the place, folks, and it's not incre- it's not overly reliable like national polling uh, used to be. Uh, so it's harder to do. There there are larger sampling errors for district level polling. So we will see these surprises. Maybe Slotkin holds on, for instance. Something like that happens. Florida, not competitive. Not competitive. So if you think Florida is going to be competitive, that's going to be a big surprise to you. It's a few. All right. Well. Wow. Um, what so, do you can before you go? Can I ask what you think about the Michigan governor's race? Yeah, I I actually think that uh, you know Gretchen Whitmer was one of the more difficult incumbent governors to defeat this cycle in a in a state that is otherwise considered uh, competitive. We run voter analysis models all the time, and Michigan does not have registration by party. So we're forced to rely on all these, and there are hundreds of them, data attributes that we connect from your voter file by basically overlapping it with uh, donor databases and and, uh, what are called consumer databases. And based on things, we'll be be able to infer uh, partisanship. It's actually quite accurate if you do it right. And the more important thing to me is the trend. Michigan trended uh, heavily Republican or not heavily overall, but it used to be over you know, D plus six or more in the era before the era of Trump. And then it became basically even to slightly Republican over the last two years. It got even two points more Republican. And I'm a little concerned looking at some of these polls that uh, these pollsters have not considered this. So I actually think that's going to be a lot closer than you see you know, the Detroit news showing, for instance, or uh, the I, I, there was one that basically gave her double Gretchen Whitmer double digits. I think Tudor Dixon actually is probably a lot closer uh, than people think. And by the way, in the average, um, just until those last two polls were released, she was and she meaning Tudor Dixon was well within the average era for Michigan. Michigan has been one of the worst polled states over the last uh, four cycles, we use a four cycle average. Uh, the Democratic lean has been upwards of seven and a half points. So if you're a Democrat, you better be leading by a lot to be able to make sure uh, that working class vote that that is so difficult to poll uh, doesn't overwhelm you. Ask Hillary Clinton. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining <laughs> us, Rich. This is great, been a great stuff. Great stuff. Yeah. Um, I can't wait to see how things work out and maybe we will have you back next week, next after the election to review the winners and losers uh, in the polling world um, on the prediction front. So thanks again for joining us. It's Rich, Rich Barrett. um, Tell everyone where they can find you. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was uh, this was great. I look forward to coming back. People can, you know, I'm on uh, Getter and Truth at People's Pundit on on Twitter at People's underscore Pundit. But the best place to follow me is on Locals. That's the social home for everything we do. And that's peoplespundit.locals.com. Uh, become a member if you don't want to become a, a supporter and, and you'll see what we're doing there. But if you are uh, supporters, we were just talking about that, the voter analysis models that we run for states. We just put up Pennsylvania and gave some context 
about uh, registration trends and how things have gone, the difference between registration versus identification. So a lot of stuff that goes up on locals that you cannot find on other social media. So it's peoplespundit.locals.com. All right. Thanks so much, Rich. Thanks for listening to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. We'll see you next week.